Good morning, everybody. The children are dismissed. That's always a curious word, isn't it? Dismissed. You're dismissed. You and you, you're dismissed. You guys are dismissed. I had an appointment this week with a man about my age. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had an appointment after me in the same spot. We were at an eatery. And that time came when it was time for me to go and the other guy to come. And he said, all right, you're, um, you know, dismissed. I thought, you don't dismiss me in your assembly line of functional relationships. I'm not going to be dismissed. I'm going to linger here. I'm, gonna, I'm sticking around. Well, something changes this time of year, doesn't it? Uh, you just can't deny there's a, a cultural shift. Whether uh, you are a, a person of no faith, you subscribe to no religion, maybe you're an atheist or agnostic, but we all can't deny around the world and in America, our culture shifts. There's uh, tinsel and trees and presents and pomp and festivities and food. There's um, ugly sweaters and eggnog and end-of-the-year sales and a Black Friday that happens now on Thursday. Uh, there's fake deer in our yards. Uh, one of our neighbors, a, a couple of streets over right here in Fondren, last year he was a, a clear candidate for Ebenezer Scrooge, and this year, man, he's going Clark Griswold. I mean, he's, he's straight up Chevy Chase. And I pulled into his yard the other day, or next to his yard, and I said, man, you have changed. What has gotten into you? I want to know. It's festive. You have lit it up over here. And he told me a little bit about just a heart change that had happened in his life. How cool is that? Isn't it true when something's going on in here, you want people to show? And when something happens in your heart, when there is a shift and it means something, other people are going to know. You just want to show it off. You want to, you want to tell people. There's a shift that happens uh, in our culture, you eat things, uh, we eat things, uh, this time of year that we don't eat otherwise, candied yams. You don't say like on a Thursday night in May, hey, maybe I'll have some candied yams. You don't say that, you don't. You don't, you don't say in March, you don't say, hey, bring me some figgy pudding, right? <laughs> you don't say that, you, you don't. I remember, I think we're, if my math is right, we're, I guess, 11 days away from our Christmas Eve service here, you're invited three o'clock on Christmas Eve. I remember my first uh, candlelight service ever as a kid. I, I remember when I was old enough to hold my own candle at the Christmas Eve service. And I remember uh, we as a family uh, on our drive home, we would look at lights around the neighborhoods. And I remember at home, oh, at home on Christmas Eve, my older sister and I, we were told that if Santa came and we were still awake, that he would pass us by. That, that really was unnerving for my adolescent neurotransmitters, right? It's like, get excited, get excited, go to sleep. Get excited, get excited, go to sleep. Get excited, go to sleep. It was torture, right? But that excitement can wane as we get older. Every, everybody knows that. I, I, that happened in my own life, and then it came back around. There's a, a circle, a cycle of life, right? And, and it, several years ago, as my kids came into the world and were little, I, I came to understand why they needed to go to bed at 8.30, right? I got that. Some assembly required, which meant help me, Susan, Right? <laughs> But there's just this shift that happens, and it can, it can really be a beautiful thing. There's the, the really ridiculous level of anticipation that happens. The, how many of you are like this? You shake the boxes, right, just to guess what's in it. If you guess right, they're like, all right, I'm going back to Target. 
Now you're shaking it right. Uh, the, the putting up of lights, this has changed through the years for us at our household. Early in our marriage, all those years ago, I was the guy on the ladder risking life and limb, weaving and bobbing and fighting with the Italian cypress tree, uh, assembling lights and everything. And uh, through the years, Susan said, look, I got it. I got it. And people will say to us, oh, we love y'all's Christmas lights. And she says, thank you. I appreciate that. Robert was watching TV. <laughs> With this excitement, and it comes some hypocrisy. This season ushers in some hypocrisy. There are some people coming over to your house, and, and you're only letting them in because you love your mother. You get that? The, the only because you love your mother are you letting those fools get in your house. Do you see what I'm saying? Don't act like, don't act like you don't know. And there's just, uh, there should be this sense of happiness. Now, here's where we just feel a little bit of weight. Some of us do, maybe a lot of us. But there's this ought, this duty, this drudgery of you should be happy. Has anyone, maybe you shouldn't raise your hand or nod on this one, but has anyone just driven around town and you've listened to the Christmas carols and they've just been too sweet? And it, just, you just feel this great detachment of you're singing about something that's just far too nostalgic. And it's, it's nowhere near my realm of living right now. And it, we, we just, we want to be happy. I, I grabbed a magazine at the bookstore the other day. By the way, I still go to bookstores. How weird is that, right? I still go to bookstores. I grabbed a book on happiness from the Philosopher's Journal. And... I, don't be a critic. Philosophers are writing and saying some deep things about happiness. I find it compelling. And most of them would agree that pretty much everything that we do is for the sake of happiness. If I say to you, the happiest place on earth, what do you think of? Say it. Disneyland, Disney World. There are, I understand there are bars all around our land and they have a an hour almost every day. It's usually late afternoon, early evening where they sell cheaply priced drinks. Uh, there's a name for that. Do you know? Anybody in here know the name of that? What do they call it? Yeah, pretty much everybody knows here in Fondren Church. <laughs> We've got friends in low places, I guess. It's called, it's called happy hour, but it makes you wonder about the other 23 hours in a day, right? It's kind of like when you, maybe I'm getting too philosophical, when you say happy holidays, are you wanting me to be miserable the rest of the year? And we, we really want deep and abiding happiness in our life. And this week as a pastor, it's just, it's in my job description. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in my job description is that I will connect with some of you and I will hear some of your stories and deep sadness has pervaded your life. With the very time that I wish I could just pull a lever, punch a button, pull, uh, twist a knob, and, and give you that happiness. And this morning, believe it or not, we have finished Ecclesiastes. And for today and next Sunday, we're setting ourselves up for Christmas Eve. I want us to look at the book of Matthew. If you want to turn there, that's great. We're going to put up a couple of verses that you're probably going to, many of you are going to, you're going to know. Some of you, maybe you have a tradition where it's red around a fire this time of year. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. This morning, I want us to consider Christmas joy. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In the ESV study Bible, it would say, Magi meet the Messiah. Now, some dealing with the, who are parsing the languages and all um, are, are arguing about the word magi is better than wise men because it, it's more gender inclusive. But I think history tells us that these were wise men. Ladies, you're one, that seems like an oxymoron for some of you based on who you hang out with and live with, right? But these were, these were wise men, and we don't know much about the wise men. We know that they're Persian. Uh, that's our uh, modern-day Iraq, Iran. We know that they were learned men. They knew the, the scriptures of Israel, the sacred text. And they reminded me, this kind of reminds me of a lot of people I know uh, out in California, uh, where we lived for several years, uh, folks who are from the east but were searching for something and they headed out west. Go west, young man. Go west, wise men. And that's what they're doing. They are there on a quest, on a search, and they're astrologers, basically, and they come upon this scene. And these wise men, and by the way, have you ever wondered, going back a bit, have you ever wondered if they were wise women, what that would mean? It would mean probably that they would ask for directions, they would show up on time, they would help deliver the baby, they would clean the stall, they would make a casserole, and they would give practical gifts like diapers and baby wipes, right? And the wise men, the magi, showed up with what? Myrrh. Now, I'm not into magi bashing, we'll save that for the Pharisees, but the magi, they showed up with myrrh, hey baby, here's some myrrh. And we're introduced here to Herod. Now, when they went, they went on a search. Their astrological search, the following of the stars, sent them on a search for a star, but really a king. But they didn't go to Bethlehem first. They went to Jerusalem. Because where would you go if you're looking for a king? You would go to Jerusalem. You would go to the place where a king lives. You would go to a place that's kingly, that's an elegant environment, that has stately surroundings, that's, that's pristine and opulent, that shows power. You would go first to Jerusalem. And this verse tells us that they came and they did see a king in Jerusalem, but not the baby king. They met King Herod, who's called King of the Jews. This is where Christmas and Easter connect. Are you with me? Uh, he was called, in fact, the last one to, to wear this moniker, to reign with this specific title. Herod is king of the Jews. This right was conferred upon him by the Roman Senate. And he was, in some ways, a puppet of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, if you remember the decree from the other gospel narratives. And this is that King Herod who is known as one paranoid king. And that's why Matthew 2, 3 will make a little more sense. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and here's the phrase, and all Jerusalem with him. Without the context, without understanding the political, socioeconomic situation, we won't get that last phrase. But here's the thing. King Herod was paranoid. I love to um, study the presidents. I've got my own little library with former presidents. And Richard Nixon, I remember the day that he resigned, was kind of forced from office. This is way beyond some of you young people. But I remember my mother crying 
when Nixon left. And, and I remember visiting the, Yorba Linda, the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda out west. And I remember learning about his level of paranoia. And when you're paranoid, when you suffer from this psychosis, from this delusion that everybody's out to get you, it's a breeding ground for insecurity. It's, it's you don't sleep, you're always uh, looking behind you and there's just suspicion and distrust toward everyone, especially the closest people among you. And it's why it makes sense when we learn about Herod that he thought everyone was a threat to his kingship, that people around him were going to dethrone him from his crown. Herod had 11 wives. That's 989 less than Solomon. Herod had 11 wives and he was so paranoid that he executed the only wife that he really loved, Miriam. He had three sons and he executed them. To make matters worse, he had a barber and he executed his barber. He, he was concerned and he was worried because he knew where his empire was going and he knew how people were becoming to see him. He was a lame duck king, if you will, and he had this sense that when I die, he was already thinking about his legacy. He, king Herod was thinking, as king of the Jews, when I die in this land, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond, I want people to miss me and I want people to mourn. And so he had this lottery, if you will, that 70 seemingly random people would be executed on the day of his own death. He wanted to be missed. He wanted to be mourned. And thus Jerusalem was mourning that very thing. So here's these magi, these wise men. They make their astrological track. And they end up in Bethlehem. What? Bethlehem. Tiny, obscure. Now think of, your, think of that redneck town that you make fun of. Now, I'm not going to say it from up, up, up on the platform. I've done that before and gotten in trouble. But just think of that redneck town that you make fun of, all right? Bethlehem, tiny, obscure, no king there. Nothing's going to happen here that's going to change the world. Nothing providential, transcendent, globe-altering would happen in little, tiny, obscure, peasant-like Bethlehem. But there the scripture tells us that these magi, Matthew 2.10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I cannot tell you how important that verse is to my walk with God right now. In the few minutes we have, I hope that you see it and you hear it because some of you need this. Because you're crushed by disappointment. You've been rejected by betrayal. You, you're perplexed by a doubt. There's this heaviness and sadness that weighs over you. And you're looking for the happiest place on earth. You're looking for a happy hour. You're looking for the word, the, for the idea of escape. Because most of us translate happiness with that word, E-S-C-A-P-E, escape. And I'm saying to you this morning as we see this beautiful phrase, exceedingly with great joy. Do you get that? Not just joy, not just great joy, but exceedingly great joy. The question really is not so much what are you going away from. 
But more important is that. And can I just say, let's just relax because we're all running. We're all those voices and the, those demons and, and the, the, the past and the, the woundedness of our lives and the, the dissatisfactions, the areas that just make us so ill-tempered and dissatisfied and complaining and, and exhausting. Those areas, we're, we're escaping. We are running from something. And that seems like that's the most important thing. And some therapists and counselors and pastors and well-meaning people think that's the biggest thing. But I think the bigger question is not what you're running from, it's what you're working toward. What are, what are you moving for? When Jesus sees people, he sees their potential. And we bury people with their actual. And you might be burying yourself with the actual in your life right now. Exceedingly with great joy. The Magi, long journey, strange land, different culture, a little bit of a nuanced language difference, and now a powerful enemy, king of the Jews, King Herod, who doesn't want anybody searching for any sort of other king besides him. And the scripture tells us a little later that they found this great joy. It seems to indicate that it was a sudden you ever had joy that's just this kinetic, sudden outburst? I love watching The Voice. We do a lot at our house. And I love the blind auditions. Are you with me on this? That's my favorite part, the blind auditions. And every so often, there, there will be somebody. I watched one the other night from Holland, uh, not on the TV, but on, on my laptop. And there's this man coming out, and I'm not a big Bob Marley Rastafarian guy, but he sang that song, Redemption Song. And the, the panel of judges over in Holland, I recognize one of them, but it was 10 seconds into this guy singing Bob Marley that they slapped the buttons, all four of them at the same time, to turn their chair around to say, who is singing this song? And, and for two minutes, you could just see them being moved with joy and glass. It was sudden. They had, they had heard something. They had discovered something. And you watch that. And I just get moved. That's not necessarily my genre, but I just get moved by that. I watched it multiple times and I'm talking chill bumps and, and almost tears. You know, those are, those are rare moments, but I think we, we get in touch with the divine when we have sudden outburst of joy. And my, my prayer for some of you today is that you're not so buried that it's not even, that that's not possible in your life anymore. And here is this sudden outburst of joy. But what I want to say in the balance of our time is that for us to get to a place of exceedingly great joy, we need to remove joy imposters in our lives. Consider Psalm chapter 6, verse 4. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Let's stop there for a second. That reflects some people that are bruised, that have been knocked down. There are many who say, show us some good. Where's happy hour? Where's the happiest place on earth? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Grain and wine are two words that are associated with great happiness in the ancient world. 
with wealth. Life, uh, can you imagine that? Life back then among certain people groups, they thought, man, the more they have of grain and wine, that, that, that that's the good life. And here he's saying, no. That's not the, the deepest attainment of your life. Not more grain and more wine. And God, what you can give. Now, you can take this or leave this this morning. But here's the call. Here's the summons that God can give us more joy than those who think they have it all. You see, let's go back a little bit. There's Jerusalem and there's a king. There's Herod who's got power and comfort and wealth and influence. But no joy. And there's Bethlehem with no money, power, wealth, fame, influence whatsoever, but there's this exceedingly great joy. You see, sometimes the gifts we think that we can't wait to open aren't the gifts we really want. And this Christmas story, I think, resonates in this world for you and I when we, we look and we compare Herod and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And we see those who seem to have so much, but they're not happy. And we see those who really don't seem to have anything, but there's a joy there. And I think that is the paradox and the beauty that I'm asking you this morning to invite into your life. Now, listen, I've said many times over from this platform, don't rip the rich. In our day, as compassion is in fashion, it's easy, and a young generation is kind of doing that. You know, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds there have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Everybody uh, be homeless. Everybody be poor. Uh, we're, we're not the church of that. We, we understand all of Scripture and take the sum of it. But I do want to say in doing that that it's really hard if you're here and you're in church and you really think that those things are going to make you happy. Over and over and over again, stubborn sheep-like creatures like you and I have to be reminded that that's not it. And a great joy imposter is the grain and the wine in our lives. And let me tell you another joy imposter is your religion. Paul in Philippians, I don't have the passage, but if you would write Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Philippians 3, 5 and 6. Paul wrote a lot about joy in this letter from a Roman jail cell. And he talked about his life and he shared his resume. Some of you are putting together a resume. You need, you need that. You want to circulate that. You're going to, you ultimately want to sit down with someone who will square their shoulders up at you, look you in the eyes after having read your resume and liked your resume, and they invite you in. And Paul shares his resume, and he says, hey, I was all-star, all-pro in every category when it came to first-century Jewish life. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. When it comes to moral dedication and religious education, I'm kind of your guy. I kind of eclipse. I mean, I was, I'm number one. When it comes to, in Philippians 3, he says, when it comes to the law, I was a Pharisee. When it comes to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. When it comes to uh, living out the law, I have been blameless. But he says, all of that I count as rubbish. When he met exceedingly great joy from his Savior, he said, those things that I thought they're just rubbish to me. Now, translators, I've studied this. I've thought about this phrase. If you email me to correct me, be very careful, okay? Because you may not win this argument. But Bible translators through the years have, um, they've been sensitive to, the, to our 
delicacies, to, to, to the delicate nature of what we want to hear or not hear, those translators. Now, the word rubbish, I'm just going to say it. Uh, we oftentimes say it as a garbage heap, but it's probably more what was, what's in your toilet bowl. I mean, it's just Paul is saying this is not a pretty thing. We've cleaned it up a little bit and maybe dulled its meaning, but it's just not, it's nothing compared to what? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Our wealth our religion, quickly a few more. Um, A joy imposter I'm finding in in my own life and with some of you is just laziness. Now that sounds odd, laziness, but some of us, we want an easy life. We daydream about moving to the mountains or having a family or a job that doesn't demand so much from us. But isn't it interesting that some of some lazy people, a lot of lazy people, are among the most exhausted people. They are among the most worried people. They are among the most ill-tempered people and complaining people around. It is better to have a job well done than a job put off. And some of us, we think joy is going to be in that. But I ask you this morning, let me just say, there's few things as dangerous as a bored man with time and energy on his hands. And read the Proverbs. I'm, I'm asking you to go back to that wisdom literature and read the Proverbs and think about the value of hard work. Compare, compare that with just taking your chances and waiting on your luck or the lottery and see what Proverbs has to say about that. And there is something to be said for rest and rhythm in our lives, but we are called to work and not to just look for easiness. And some of us think, some of us live with this joy imposter that that's the thing. It's moving away, moving to the mountains, getting a a job, a family, something else. It's discarding things in our current life so we can have a greater life of ease. But laziness, a life of ease is a joy imposter as is lust. Don't want to mess up a Christmas season. But we're, we're getting some counselors at Fondren Church. We're getting them a place and we're getting a team of people and they're, they're clinical and they've got the degrees and they've got the credibility. They, 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 they have a pastor's heart and we're going to open up the door here to our church. But it, it's been said, I, I, I've been to pastor's conferences and I've talked and I've heard it said that if you open up this, it's a Pandora's box. But pornography and lust is an enemy of intimacy with God and your mate, or listen, younger people, your future mate. It is dehumanizing, and I haven't said it in a while. I said it over at Dueling Hall, but the studies are in, the really smart men and women who've studied it, and women who come out of pornography and prostitution, they have the same post-traumatic stress disorders as men and women who've been POWs. Why? for our cheap, quick pleasure, for for nerve impulses and endings to have some momentary satisfaction, but it is not joy. I wish you could be with me sometimes to talk to men. I always talk to men with this area of their lives, never women, that's not my role. But to, to, to know that people are saying, here's this joy, it's gonna bring joy in my life, but I don't know anybody that crawls into bed at night after having betrayed their husband and wife who feels good about themselves. I don't know anybody that goes out of town and uses a stranger for a weekend liaison and feels good. 
the emptiness of lust, it, it wreaks havoc on us. I think we have Proverbs 5.14. I want to put it up in several ver- versions of the scripture. Uh, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Do you know what that means? He's saying I've come to worship with people who love God. And I ought to be focused on God, but I'm ruining my life. I'm right here with people, but I'm ruining my life. And I'm on the utter brink. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. I have come to the brink of utter ruin, and now I must face public disgrace. We think, we think distorting a good gift of God and doing it our way for the quick fix is going to bring satisfaction and joy and happiness for us, but it doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, we mistake altering our moods with refreshing our soul. Don't do that. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm imploring you, don't do that. I am tempted in every manner like you are. And I've been reminded this week that I have to have guardrails around my own life, and I want it for my children as they grow. I was at a restaurant yesterday, and I looked and saw a fellow pastor across town. He doesn't pastor here, but that's okay. God can bless him too. And he was with his son, who's a teenager, and they were having discipleship time. And guess what? This is crazy. That dad and that son, neither one of them had a phone out. This is even crazier. They were looking at each other. And they had this sustained conversation. I want our young people, I want everybody to know that this laziness, this lust, it's a joy imposter and so is anger. I'm going to get my way. I'm going to make mama come around to daddy's way of thinking. I'm going to do it by going home and setting it straight. I'm going to yell loudly. I'm going to voice my displeasure violently, and then I will win the argument, therefore I get justice, and I will walk away satisfied. I will have joy. And what I've learned, I hate to admit that I know this a little bit, but what I've learned in that scenario is you probably don't get justice, and you sure as heck don't get joy. And there are people, they're in the they're in your wake. They live in your wake. They, leave, they live in the, the vibrations, the aftershock of your rage and your unreasonableness and stating your cause and getting your way and demanding things in the moment. It could be mood elevating, but it is not soul refreshing. Now, maybe today I've gotten a little too preachy. But the deepest need you and I have is that our souls would be refreshed if we're going to have exceedingly great joy in this season or any others. And to have this joy, let us, I'm asking you to be mindful of the joy impostors of your life. Now, maybe today, you're, you're here today and you're saying, man, things are all right. Got a good job. My kids are doing great. By the way, I learned this week that the the number one, if you type in on Google or your search engine, you say, um, is my two-year-old, dot, 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 is my two-year-old, the the number one answer comes up, is my two-year-old gifted? We want gifted people, right? As we get older, we don't feel so good about our giftedness, so we want our kids 
to be gifted? Are they gifted to have I passed on my world-class genes to my two-year-old? And maybe today you have, and you're feeling good about your job and your kids. You look good and your clothes fit. Your regrets are few. And all the relatives that will be at your house next week around your table are emotionally healthy and well-adjusted. And you're just saying things are all right. There's a funny little saying in AA. And really, it's, it's not funny. But they say in AA that when uh, they're inside hoping to gain victory over their addictions, their addictions are out in the parking lot doing push-ups, waiting on them. Does life feel like that for you? I think it does, if you think. And I think it feels that way for you because it is that way for you. Because we're in this spiritual battle and the enemy wants no one to have joy. Remember Melinda Gann a month ago stood here and taught from John 10, 10. We know you've heard the verse, but the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he came that you might have life. And that includes a life of joy. And this morning as we close, I, here's what I want to say to you. Like It's, it's, it's culminating right here. And for some of us, we think this religion thing, it's just been passed on, by the way, but this religion thing for us is just this little category in our lives, and we think it's a grin and bear it, suck it up, shake it off, walk it off. But that does nothing to stir up your affection. So let me back up a little bit and give context to all the things I've said. When I talk about laziness, man, I want people to call me out because if you read Proverbs 5, the verse that's, all the verses that come before 14, it's a man talking to his son and he's saying, receive counsel, take instruction, listen to people around you. They will help you. You better listen. I want to listen and I need that verse because my heart is wicked. And it reminds me there is a path that honors him and helps me. And there's one and many that do not. And I need that verse. When in Job talks about making a covenant with my eyes to not look at someone in a lustful way, I'm good. I need that verse. That's helpful. I've memorized it years ago. I've walked it out in so many ways. I need that because my heart is wicked. I need the nose. When Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I need that verse because my heart is wicked. I need the nose. I need the nose. I need the nose in my life. I need you, some of you, people to bring instruction and counsel to my life. I need that. But I don't want to stand up here today and not give you the gospel, which is the grin and bear it religion. And it is a treadmill that sucks the joy out of every wannabe religious person in the room. Find the things that stir your affections for Jesus. And don't think the good girl, good girl, good guy thing is going to do it. The church going, check writing, brownie baking, choir singing, religious thing is going to do that for you. Look at Paul. Philippians 3, 5, and 6. Read it later and think about it. What stirs our affections for Jesus? And I close with this. We looked at a couple of verses with the Christmas story in Matthew. The, the scripture tells us in Luke 2 that Jesus grew. Baby, Jesus grew. And he grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. And he became a great teacher and the master teacher. And it says, he says in Matthew 7, as he told a parable about us sticking with it, 
He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. I'm asking for joy in my life. And it's not a formula. It's not a lever that you pull. He would later teach in Matthew 13 about the treasure that was buried, that joy. He finds a treasure and he's so excited. It's great joy. That's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is joy. And when you find that joy, it's, it's discovered joy. It's the voice. It's those people hitting that button going, what is that? I want more of that. I'm turning my chair around. I'm going to listen and goosebumps are coming up and I'm going to have joy because this is remarkable. That's a picture of the kingdom. And Jesus said, ask your father for this gift because he wants it. I'm going to shut up in a second, but here's my prayer. Next Sunday, we're going to have a little Christmas message again. And then a Christmas Eve service. And then, listen, on that Sunday before Christmas and New Year, we are not even going to have church. If you come here, you can have a quiet time on the sidewalk. We never have had church that Sunday, and we're not going to this year. We are a week from today, and we are on Christmas Eve, but not that following Sunday. But we're going to start the new year, 2015. Can you believe that? In a couple weeks into 2015, we're going to do a series on the life of Moses, one of the most famous people in the history of the world, revered by many world religions, several billion people around the world. We're going to look at one of the most difficult questions, where is God? for one of the most famous people in history, Moses. Where is God in the desert seasons of life? Where is God when I am wounded? Where is God when I am waiting? Where is God when I feel trapped? And my prayer for 2015 is that we'll learn from Scripture, but we'll learn how to intersect it with our lives in a very real way. And I have a prayer, and it's a thought, that what if we became known as a people with exceedingly great joy? That's not equated with pretty, pristine, perfect people where everything goes well. Because in 1 Peter, he talks about joy a lot. And the church is being persecuted. They're suffering greatly. And he says, we have a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Have you noticed that when the scripture talks about joy, it, it doesn't go like half butt? I mean, it's all in. I mean, it's like a big thing. Exceedingly great joy, joy unspeakable, full of glory. But what if we became known as a people, uh, as a church, that we weren't pushy or judgmental or religious or bureaucratic or arrogant or about ourselves or about uh, our ego? What if we were known as a place of great and exceeding joy? I'm seeing it happen in our lives. I had lunch Friday with a friend. He's a young guy and a deacon in our church. And there was a waitress who was serving at our table. And I said, isn't, isn't this season great? And she said, somebody agrees. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, it's kind of tough. I said, why is it tough? She said, I got a five-year-old boy. And we have a lot of needs. And my friend's like, what do you need? She needs, she needs a bunk bed. 
And within six hours, he and his wife have found a bunk bed. Now we're looking for a couple of mattresses. And you know what Jesus said is true. It is better to, say it with me, it is better to give than to receive. You will have more joy if you learn to give than receive. It's why in 2015, I am not going to be afraid to talk about money. I'm not going to be afraid of talking about us being a generous church because if we're going to be a generous church, you are going to need to be challenged to walk in generosity. And it's exceedingly great joy when we pour our lives out. Do you know the most greedy, the most stingy people in this room or any other are rich people? Do you know who gives more money? Those on the lower income bracket. God is calling us to pour our lives out, and it ought to be joyous. When you leave today, your addictions and problems and those besetting sins, they're, they're in the parking lot. Right now, they're doing push-ups, and they're waiting on you. And I say this verse a lot, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm not going to walk out there and say, don't lust, don't be angry, don't be lazy, don't live to, for materialism, don't boast about my religion. I'm going to walk out there and know that the way I'm able to ward off temptation and walk in victory is if the joy of the Lord is my strength. We got to laugh. We got to relish and savor. We talked about that, didn't we, a few weeks ago. That's what we've got to do to be those people. Ask. Let's pray. I'm reminded of a great writer esteemed by many, C.S. Lewis, who said somewhat playfully that joy is the serious business of heaven. And for all that hurts us and sets us back, y'all, we are practicing. If your life is hidden with Christ and God, and we're learning to set our affections on things above, and learning how to stir up our affections to love Christ, then we're practicing for our eternity. God, I pray that Fondren Church would begin the serious practice of joy and gladness, of pouring our life out, of suffering. And when we suffer, we do what Paul said in Romans 12. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We honor one another in brotherly love. We're devoted to one another. And when we see someone who doesn't even worship here, but they work 100 yards from here, and they need a bunk bed and a mattress, we go right to them, and we do not delay. And we meet needs, and we learn that the words of Jesus really are true. God, I pray against the men and women who are eaten up by lust, by laziness, by anger, by religion. They're joy imposters. And Father, I pray this prayer over us, knowing my own brokenness and dysfunction and sin. I'm above no one. My need for you and your mercy, your, re, your renewing mercy is so great. God bless this time. 
May we stay, may we pray, may we sing, may we do business with you. In Jesus, amen. Church, would you stand? Topher and the team are behind me in front of you. And I want you to stand and I want you to sing. And Gary and Susan and I are going to be down front. We'll have uh, help if we need it. We're going to face you. And we're going to be open to anybody who wants to be prayed for today. I pray that you would help us reserve these moments to be a place for prayer. Would you give us an opportunity if we can come around you today or someone you know, if we can put an arm around you and offer up something to our Father. maybe that don't have an opportunity on Christmas Eve or maybe those in your neighborhood or at your work that need a place to worship we're going to meet at three o'clock in the afternoon which we think is a very convenient time for us to come together it's not going to last more than an hour but it gives us an opportunity to come and prepare our hearts as we look to celebrate what the next day means so I want to invite you to think about doing that also if you're a student between the ages of 7 and 12th grade, we have an opportunity for you to come at 5 o'clock today for your end of the year. Uh, get together with, with those that have lead, been leading that ministry. We're going to meet right here at 5 o'clock right outside these doors. So I hope that you will come. If you have a child that age, please bring them and let them experience that. And finally, we want to invite you, as we have been talking over the last month or so, about what God has done to bless us in this place We've had the opportunity to restore this building, and we've secured our future, and we want to give you the opportunity to participate in that. If you'll look in front of you in, in the pews scattered out, there's an envelope that if you feel God calling you to be a part of this, we ask you to do that. You can go on our website and give that way, but as Robert mentioned, for us to be generous, we need all of us in the room to be generous, and we just ask that you'll pray to be a part of that as we look toward 2015. We are so thankful that you've come today. We love you all. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next week.